we're going to wrap up a series called Acts, the birth of a church. Um, if we haven't met, my, my name is Bob, and you can think of me as like the second string speaker. I get to speak, you know, like every, whatever, six to eight weeks, uh, shorter, longer, depending on Jake and how much he wants to talk to us, right? Um, so always a huge pleasure to do it. Uh, today we're going to be in Acts chapter 8, verses 1 through 8, a fairly short passage. And if you think back over the series, whether you've been here for all six weeks or not, here's where we've been. So in week one, uh, Jake talked about the promise, where Jesus promises the Holy Spirit to his followers. Uh, week two was about the message. What is the message that's going out? Week three was about community and the church from Acts chapter two. I got to do that one. Uh, week four was mistakes. If you remember Ananias and Sapphira very tragically actually dying because of the decisions they made. Um, that was a fun week, of course. Week number five, last week was called The Cost, where Jesus, or, uh, Jesus, Jake talked about Stephen, who was the very first martyr. He was killed for his faith. And then today, the last week of this series, we're going to talk about the dispersion or the scattering. Um, and then next week, we'll start a whole new thing. So what Acts chapter 8, or at least the beginning of it, is about, and my main point for this morning is, is this. God uses really hard circumstances to move his people. It's not the only way he works, but oftentimes God uses really, really, really hard circumstances to move his people. Um, so that's what we'll chat about and I'll illustrate it. Uh, for example, one way I've experienced army training, there are many ways to be army trained, but one way I have experienced training, um, last summer, uh, my last assignment to be commissioned as an officer in the, in the Na National Guard um, was to do this simulated mission. It was pass or fail. Um, and so there's a lot of stress because I spent a lot of time trying to get commissioned and they're going to put you, they put you through a simulated mission. You're in charge of a squad that's eight to nine. Um, so we're all fully, you know, in the whole uniform, you got your assault rifle, there's a dude over here with a machine gun, I mean, it's, so you're like, all, all the equipment that they give you, you have it all, you're only missing one real thing, and that's bullets, um, they give you blanks, so you get the bang without the actual um, bullet, so you don't hurt each other in a training environment, right, um, so, so I'm in charge of this squad of eight, they give me my mission, um, we set a course through the woods, we have the, the compass and everything, I've plotted it all out, I've briefed the squad on what we're going to do, and we move through the woods, and I have this beautiful plan, because the mission is to take out the enemy who have been emplacing IEDs, right? And no one does that in my watch, especially in a training environment where we have blanks. Um, so we move through the woods, and we get there, and as soon as fake bullets start flying, but you know, like the effect is there, there's all sorts of people with all sorts of gunfire. My little perfect plan absolutely went out the window. And that's the way it works. Um, when, as soon as, uh, in your perfect plan, as soon as the first bullet's flying is just totally gone. And so what I found myself doing was I did a pretty good job at the beginning, but about two-thirds of the way, someone said that they saw an IED. And so uh, in, in the way things were moving and the way we had to get to the enemy and all this stuff, we had to, like, pass over it. And I didn't know what to do. I'm not in some elite group, right? I'm in the National Guard. And I was trying to commission as a second lieutenant. So, so there's all this stuff happening, and I stalled out. Like, I started thinking, what do I do in this situation? And the Jeopardy music started playing in my head. <laughs> now, Army trainers don't have patience for such things. They don't like that sort of music. 
And so when they see that you have stalled out, and therefore your whole squad has stalled out, what they do is they pull something out of their pocket called an arty sim or an artificial grenade or artificial artillery. And what they do is they pop that and they throw it in your midst. And it literally makes the sound like whistle. And then you hear the boom, like super loud. So when you're having a hard time making decisions and there's chaos and you're stressed out because it's pass fail and I don't want to fail this, there in their, in their kindness, what they do is they offer you a decision-making tool. And so <laughs> as soon as it explodes, they point and they say, you're dead and you're dead. Your leg is missing. Now, what are you going to do? And they look you straight in the eye and say, what are you going to do? Actually, it's a graceful thing that they're doing. It's a nice thing because it makes your next decision very easy. You don't want to be where grenades are falling. You want to be over there where grenades are not falling. So what am I going to do? I'm going to say, everyone, 100 meters, let's go, follow me. And you start running. And it's in that motion, it's in that moving where the fog fades and you realize, oh, this is what I needed to be doing the whole time. And you advance and you do your whole army thing, right? What I'm going to argue this morning from this text is that it's very important to understand that God often works in a very similar way. He will drop impossible circumstances on you. And he's going to use those impossible circumstances to move you, to get you where he needs you to be, to get you, maybe it's back on mission. Sometimes he's going to use impossible circumstances in order to get his truth or his character or something about his message into you. Other times, he's going to use those impossible circumstances to put you in the midst of other people who need to hear about him. And the only way he would get you amongst those people is to do some really, really tough things in your life. God moves this way. And it's important that you understand this because if you don't, you're going to misinterpret his action in your life. And I, I would be willing to bet if I had time and we actually sat there or sat and chatted a whole bunch, a lot of us are misinterpreting what God is trying to do in your life. Because when he does these hard circumstances, it's really easy to think that he's uninvolved or that he's uncaring or that he's just downright mean for doing these things to you. All the while, he's actually, it's his way of moving. And it's his way of actually gracefully and, and in difficult circumstances moving you where he needs to be. So all that said, I'm going to invite Matthew to stand up. He's going to read uh, chapter 8, verses 1 through 8 of Acts. Thanks, sir. Thanks for doing that. Okay, so the, the text is broken up, at least the way the um, ESV does it, into two essential like paragraphs. So we're going to focus in on that first paragraph. So it says, uh, verse 1, And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. So that day, what was that day? It was the same day that Stephen was just publicly and brutally murdered for standing in front of the religious leaders who were also the cultural leaders of that day and telling them that they were wrong and that they were wrong about Jesus and that their whole system was off. So when he boldly looked them in the eye and said, what you did to Jesus, what you did to the righteous one was wrong, they reacted with rage. And they killed him by stoning him uh, to death. So it was, an it was a brutal thing that happened to him, to one person, to Stephen. But on that same day, the entire church became a target. So a place that was very, very safe just now became a place that was uh, fairly dangerous. We'll skip over the next sentence because I want to come back to it. So verse 2 continues, devout men buried Stephen 
and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church, and entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. So this is a huge turn in the story of Acts. Um, If you've been through the series, um, you know that things didn't start off like this. So uh, imagine for a second, I mean, like, try to actually lock it in your brain. How terrifying would it be if someone burst in the door right now and said, Bob, I hate to interrupt your talk, uh, but Imprint Church down the road was just raided because we've just, whatever, we've reached that place. Anyone who was claiming to believe in Jesus is now being put in prison. If that really happened, I know it's like so far removed from reality, but if that happened, I don't know what that would even look like. That's mind-blowing, right? Like if, if I was standing here, I've got three kids checked into childcare right now. If I heard that, you better believe I'd be like, okay, I would like to s- quietly dismiss you. You're dismissed. And I'd be going to get my kids, and I'd be out of here, getting my kids out of here, right? So what, uh, th- what was a safe place has just become a very da- a different place, a dangerous place. You don't know when the door is going to come down and, and someone's going to come in and drag you off to prison. So if you look through the story, this makes sense in context. So we got to kind of go there, right? So if you look in Acts chapter 1. Uh, What does it say? It says, let me get there. In Acts chapter 1, Jesus is super clear when he says in verse 8, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, that's where they're at, and in all Judea, that's the region they're in, Samaria, that's the next region north, and to the end of the earth. So in Acts chapter 1, Jesus is super clear with his followers that this message, everything about him and what God is doing through him, is not to be just here, it's supposed to go worldwide. This thing is supposed to spread. So then you fast forward into chapter 2, and you see that the church is growing rapidly. So in verse 41 it says, And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Again, that's just in Jerusalem. It says, All who believed were together, had all things in common. A little bit further in verse 46, Day by day, attending the temple together. The temple is in Jerusalem. So all 3,000 are attending the temple day by day in Jerusalem. Fast forward. We're in chapter 2 there. Fast forward to chapter 6. Now, we don't know if this is weeks later, months later. I don't know. But if you go to verse 7, it says, And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. Everything was happening in Jerusalem. They weren't leaving. They were busy singing Kumbaya in Jerusalem, Trying to build this thing in Jerusalem, which essentially had kind of that uh, attractional mindset, maybe. I don't know if that's what they were thinking. Like, hey, if you want to hear about Jesus, that's all fine and great. But if you do, you got to come here to hear about Jesus. Jerusalem is where it's all happening. Where Jesus was very clear in chapter 1 that, no, this message is going to go to the ends of the earth. So you've got two things that are at odds with each other. So what does God do? Pops a little grenade, and he goes, all right, and he gets their butts moving. And thousands of them take off out of town, uh, and they, um, well, actually, let's let's look at it. In verse 1, it says, what happened? They were all scattered. They were all dispersed throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, just like Jesus said, except the apostles. So this persecution was God's way of getting them moving. Now, that's why I'm pulling out the principle here that God uses 
hard circumstances sometimes, not always, but hard circumstances to get us moving. Because he could have just as easily said, hey, hmm, I need to get them out of Jerusalem. How am I going to do this? Let's send a prophet. Let's send someone who has really good, like, teaching, com- teaching abilities. Who's a good prophet? Mm, let's say, let's go with Jim this time. And Jim walks into the church at Jerusalem while they're all there. And he says, hey, guys, remember that one time when Jesus was saying that we were supposed to go? Well, hear ye, hear ye. Now it's time to go. And he, God could have moved, and he could have got them moving simply by having someone stand in front of him and tell him what to do, right? But God didn't do that. He went more for the dramatic side of things. He went for the longer-lasting side of things and the more conviction-creating side of things. And he had persecution on Stephen, which impacted the entire, uh, the entire church. I think it's the same general principle at play here where if you, in a moment of clarity, you pray to God, Lord, I want to be more like you. Please make me fill in the blank. Make me more patient. God doesn't just instill patience in you. How many of you have ever prayed for God to change you, like in a character way? How many, like literally, how many of you have done that? How many of you, how many of you have actually had God just instill that character trait in you? No. We all sitting here know that if you ask for more patience, he's not going to put it in you magically and you're like, I am the most person in the world. Instead, he's going to put you in a thousand situations where you have to be patient and he's going to walk with you and you're going to make mistakes and you're going to be extremely impatient and you're going to repent. You're going to try again. Three years later, you're going to practically have lost your mind, but you're going to be a more patient person. And in another moment of clarity, you're going to look back and realize, I wasn't like this before. God has done something in my life and it's taken a long time to do. Literally, I'm not not even joking, literally two days ago, um, I'm sitting at home. My wife is out of town this weekend for four days so she can drum at a women's conference in California where it's 75 degrees. Um, So there she is, and here I am with three young children, ages two to seven. And so I'm uh, I'm at home. I'm going to do this thing, right? And two days ago, I'm, I'm literally praying, Lord, help me to be more patient with them. And actually, the way I worded it is, my kids have an effect on me where I'll be like totally even keel and then they'll do something and the graph for me isn't like, oh, he's getting a little frustrated. The graph for me is like, he's frustrated. You know, like it's really bad. Um, and I don't lose control or anything, but it's just not who I want to be sometimes. Uh, and so I was literally like, God, will you help me to this weekend to just have a great time with them and love them and not get frustrated when they do all their crazy kid things. And we're doing good. This is Friday night. I've cooked a meal for these children, myself, all by myself. I barbecued it. And uh, so on their plates, there's a burger. There is uh, some sort of vegetable that none of us are really going to eat, let's be honest, because mama ain't home, so why would we? And there's applesauce in a little cup. And so my, everything is great. I'm like, man, this is working. And my little two-year-old is sitting on a chair, squarely, not even on his knees or anything crazy, and somehow, magically, he manages to fall off this chair from a sitting position. <laughs> so I don't even know technically how it's possible, but he starts going, and I'm like mid-bite and look over to see it happening to my left. And in his falling, which happens all the time, he's a klutz, that's fine. Um, in his falling, he turns into something else. He is like in an effort to save himself. He reaches, and what does he get? He gets his plate. His plate has not been eaten very much of it, especially the applesauce. 
So he, in, again, in his physical abilities, as he falls, catapults it this way and then falls on the ground. So all of a sudden, we go from happy meal together as a family to got a two-year-old laying on the ground, freaking out. I look up, and there's applesauce container against the window going, like, sliding down <laughs> all the way to the bottom. So applesauce everywhere, in the trim, like, everything. He now is not, like, choking dangerously, but he's gagging because he had a bite in his mouth. Well, my other two kids can't handle that, so they're plugged ears in an effort to get away from the table. They, of course, knock stuff off the table and run in the other room. And so I am left there with a gagging child who I'm, like, picking up and trying to do that. I've got applesauce, food everywhere, two kids who are totally gone. And I'm thinking to myself, I don't know how this graph is going to go right now. <laughs> and I literally had the thought, I am preparing a talk on this about how God does things. Okay. All right, and I thought to myself, I am li I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go with it. I'm just going to let this happen. It's just like a warm blanket come over me. <laughs> All right, let's let this have its effect on me. And in that moment, I, I, after he's not choking or gagging anymore, I'm literally thinking to myself, one, this is ridiculous, the life we live with kids. And two, I can only imagine how God must feel sometimes about me about the crazy things that I do and the things I think and then the actions I take. It's one thing for a two-year-old to fall on accident and make a huge mess. It's one thing for a 33-year-old to make the decisions he makes and decides to turn his back on God and essentially give him the finger and walk away and then come back two days later like, oh, I'm stupid, I'm sorry. And yet he's patient and yet he's kind and yet he's always providing for me, doing all these things. In that moment, I was literally thinking, this is how you're going to change me and to be, to be who I need to be. You're going to put me in these sorts of situations. Now, that's a small one. It's, you could fill in the blank, right? You could lose your job. That's huge. You could get sick. A family member could get sick. You could be hurt. There's a million different things that you could fill in this blank. In this text, it's persecution to keep it, to keep it real for this context. That's not something we really jive with as much. We're not really persecuted at this point, right? Um, so you could fill in that blank with a whole bunch of things. The point I'm trying to make is God really does use this sort of method to change us. He also uses this sort of method to move us where he needs us to be, whether that's getting his message into us or putting us in a place where others really need to hear uh, his message. The, the thing that's really hard to, to remember in situations like that is he's not cruel. He's not being unloving to you. He's not uninvolved. Um, He's just going to continue his good work in, in you until the day where he's completed it is all. So here's, here's the thing. Um, here's a big point. Uh, God is not most primarily cons concerned with your comfort. That's just something I hope you walk out of here and internalize. Your comfort is not number one on God's priority list. Do you know, do you know what his number one priority is? It's actually the display, the magnification of his glory. That's what he's about every day, all day, since eternity started till eternity will not end because it's eternity. But that's what he's concerned with is the magnification of his glory. And the, the biggest way that he magnifies his glory is by letting us see and be involved in his grace, which is what the story of Jesus is all about. 
So God's concern is not your comfort, it's his glory. And if your comfort stands in the way of his glory being magnified more and people understanding his message more or you understanding his message more, he is going to sacrifice your comfort in order to bring you into a better reality where you know about his grace, where you know about what he did through Jesus, where you understand his character and you're more like him. Your comfort often does stand between that glory and where you're at today. So you have to walk out of here ready for that. Um, otherwise, we're just lying to you and telling you, you follow Jesus, everything's going to be great. Uh, it's not, because he's going to move in your life in a way where he invites you into that bigger story that's happening. So let's keep going. So what happens with all this? Uh, so sec- second section, there's like another paragraph there. Verse 4, now those who are scattered or dispersed, went about preaching the word. I think that is quite amazing because if that happened here and there was actual persecution, someone just died and people are actually being put into prison because of what they believe and we just don't know, even know when that's going to happen at this church. If that happens and we're scattered, my suspicion is most of us are going to scatter and then we're going to do it into almost like anonymity. Like we're going to keep ourselves safe. We're not going to go about preaching the word, we're going to go like hunker down, it's going to become a real quiet sort of faith, we're going to move to the suburbs, we're going to go to Christian colleges where we don't have to have that professor who's going to challenge things, we're going to homeschool our kids, that's not a, it's, that may sound offensive, I went to a Christian college and I homeschool my kids, so I'm totally there, like the, the tendency is going to be The tendency is going to be to move to a place of safety when this sort of thing happens. What's amazing is it says those who were scattered went about preaching the word. They went into a whole different place. They didn't defy the system by like getting angry and like lobbying for better legislation where they can't target you for your faith and stuff like that. They defied the system in a completely different way. And that was by talking about Jesus and saying, I don't care how the system works. You are never, ever going to be able to, t- to stop me from telling someone about the message of Jesus. That God loves, loved the world so much that he sent his son to take our sin and our shame upon himself. And that if you just put your faith in him, he'll trade you your sin and shame for his righteousness. In the best exchange, the best trade ever. They defied the system by going out with the message, not by trying to actually like change the system. So that's amazing to me. If you um, keep going... Uh, It says in verse 5 that Philip went down to the city of Samaria. Who in the world is Philip? He's not one of the original 12 disciples. Um, In fact, you only meet him a couple chapters before this in chapter 6 of Acts, where he is one of the uh, followers of Jesus chosen to serve food to the widows, uh, technically the Greek-speaking widows is what it says. So Philip... Um, or I should say, God is going to do a huge move in the church. He's going to scatter them. They're going to go share the message. And it's amazing that what God decides to do in his word is zoom in on the person who is put in as a servant to serve food to widows. You could almost say it's today's equivalent of the brew crew that makes the coffee for the church. And sometimes we get cookies and all that fun stuff. God takes that person and zooms in on him in the word. And it says that Philip went down to the city of Samaria. Now, Samaria is a region. There's also a city that maybe, maybe the place he went to is called Sebast. I 
read that that may be the city that's being talked about, or maybe the text is simply saying a city, a city in Samaria. But either way, Philip goes to the region that's directly north of where he's at in Jerusalem, uh, and no doubt if you've been to church for more than, you know, a month, you've heard that Samaria or Samaritans and Jewish people don't get along. It's water and oil. For hundreds of years, Samaritans have been, uh, have been seen as like this inbred group of uh, people who are not purely Jewish and all this stuff. And so for, Jew or for uh, Philip to go across that cultural boundary and proclaim Jesus in Samaria is a huge move. I don't even know what that would be equivalent to uh, for us today. Like for us to go over the border to Canada, maybe, and to tell Canadians about Jesus. I don't even know, right? That great state to the north. Um, so he proclaims to them the Christ. So Philip goes down to the city of Samaria, and it says he proclaims to them the Christ. So what, what I see when I look at that is he doesn't go to Samaria and then find a good, honest job and he, you know, raises his family, and he tries to build friendships for 10 years so that from a place of solid friendship, he can begin to maybe talk about Jesus. Because that's how I tend to think. That's how a lot of us tend to think. It's more of that long range. I can't tell someone about Jesus unless they know me super, super well, and I know them super, super well. What you see from this is, again, Philip goes into a place across the big cultural boundary, and he proclaims to them the Christ. Uh, verse 6, it says, The crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So when he went to this city, his, you could say his ministry, and I think this translates to us, his ministry had two sides. There were, there were words, and then there were deeds. I'm not saying that ours will be identical to his. I understand that living in Woodenville or the Woodenville area is a lot different than going to Samaria 2,000 years ago. But his way of communicating had two sides, words and deeds. They both got to be there or this ain't going to work. So some people just go to words. Not many people do this, but I mean, picture the soapbox guy, right? He's just up in a crowd. He's at a concert or whatever, and he's yelling, hey, you're going to hell if you don't believe in Jesus, or the big sign. I went down to Vancouver last weekend and literally saw huge uh, signs on the side of the road about going to hell if I don't believe in Jesus. So I'm driving 60 miles an hour, and I'm like, oh, that's awful. <laughs> I don't know what to do with that. <laughs> that's probably, that's, a, that's words only, right? That ain't really going to work. It might plant a seed. It might do some good. But it is nothing compared to when they're, the two words and deeds are together. Other people are on the other side, and it's all deeds, only deeds, in fact, because they're too afraid to actually talk about Jesus. So if you've been in church, again, you've probably heard the, the term or the, the phrase, uh, preach the gospel always. And when necessary, use words. Right. That's been, I've heard plenty of people kind of debunk that phrase, um, but not enough. So I'm going to do it again. That phrase is ridiculous. Preach the gospel always, and when necessary, use words. I, would, I am glad to stand in front of you and tell you that your good deeds are not the gospel. Your good deeds are not the gospel. The gospel is that God loved the world enough to send his son to die on the cross and that whole story. You going to the whatever actions you're going to take uh, to feed people, to help people, to give generously, whatever it might be, that is not communicating the, the story of the gospel. 
I'm not discounting good deeds. What I'm saying, all that's doing is opening doors. That's all it does. Your good deeds and, and the effect that the gospel has on you is not the gospel itself. It will save nobody. Ain't getting anybody to the gate of heaven and Jesus saying, yeah, I cover you with my righteousness. It's not going to happen. Now, when you put the two together, so you're doing good deeds, and that is opening doors. That's allowing people to see and hear the message with a different set of eyes. And you have the boldness to bring in the word side of it and to tell people that Jesus is real and what he's done in your life and all that stuff. Once the two are together, it's much like you see in this story. People, people are moved to listen. The spirit moves and he acts and people respond to the message. And then you get to verse 8. So there was much joy in that city. That is the result. The whole goal of what's going on here is for people to put their faith in Jesus. And the result of that is joy. It's delight in what God is doing in them. Because delight and joy to me, it's just an overflow. And you know what the same thing, the same word for me is? It's called worship. That's what worship is, is an overflow of joy and delight in God. So in this city, what I see in that is there was much joy, overflowing worship in that city. But it's not just for the people who were affected in Samaria. you got to believe that Philip, who is standing there seeing all this happen, he's probably thinking to himself, this is a whole lot better than what was happening in Jerusalem alone. I'll take this any day, seeing the joy of people finally meeting Jesus. And then not to me mention their joy for, for hearing the message. So put this whole thing together, right? And what I'm trying to communicate through this text is that God is going to move, to use really hard circumstances in your life. He's going to do it. You're going to face things that you don't want to face, that you can't face. And he's doing it as an act of love. He's doing it as an act of grace. He's doing it because he's involved, not because he's uninvolved. He's doing it because he cares, not, be, not because he's uncaring. So the, the voice in your head, the, the message that you're going to be receiving from other folks, whatever it might be, you got to trust that Jesus is doing it because he wants to move you. He wants to either move his message into you or he wants to put you in a place where his message can be moved through you to people who need it. So if I could boil it down to three things that I hope you do as you walk out of here. I think the first would be, no matter what happens, I hope you trust him. And I know that's going to be impossible unless the Spirit helps you. But I hope you trust him first. And number two, I hope you go with it. Kind of like in this story where the, the grenade drops, Stephen is killed, and the, the, they're scattered. What, you, what I see interweaved in here is that they trusted God and that they went with it. Wherever they were scattered, they preached the word. They said, Jesus, if you want me to go into this group of people, okay, wherever you put me, I'm going to preach the word. I'm going to look to my left. I'm going to look to my right. If I'm in a hospital because I'm sick or a family member is, if I lost my job so I'm whatever, I have more time at home, I'm going to look to my left, I'm going to look to my right, and I'm going to see who's there. I'm going to see who needs to hear this message. So you trust him, you go with it, and then you make the most of it like Philip did. He preached the word. And then there's story after story in the book of Acts about how this happens. You go with it, and then you make the most of it. So the last thought, if it's true that we are the light of the world, like Jesus said, you are the light of the world once you have that message. If it's true that we're the light of the world, but he wants to get that light into extremely dark places where there is no light, 
it makes sense that he is going to move you into very dark places. When that happens, don't freak out about it. Don't cover up that light. Don't, don't go totally internal. Don't go, uh, you know, all negative and sad and, like, try to fix it and things like that. Although all that stuff is going to happen, it's going to wash over you. Instead, take that light, realize the dark place he's taking you to, and do your darndest to let that light shine. To, I don't want to be, like, like, cliche or anything, but wherever he's taking you, make that light shine wherever it is. Defy the system by making the most of it, by talking about Jesus. That's the whole point of the circumstances that are going to move you. So with that, I'll pray, and then we've actually got a whole bunch of time because we put the talk at the beginning to respond and to worship. So let's pray. Lord, I am I'm honored to get to talk about your word, um, but I also understand that this sort of message um, for a crowd that's like this, um, it touches some places that are beyond my ability to even speak into. Some people have walked in here with a weight on their shoulders and in their heart that is crippling. And this message only begins to explain what you might be up to in their life. This just might be one thing that you're doing in their life amidst a whole, a whole bunch of more things. So I just want to pray for the people in this room that as you move them and put really impossible circumstances in their midst, I just pray that you would give them the courage to trust you and that you'd give them the courage to have gospel conversations wherever you take them so that your glory will be made known to the ends of the earth. And I pray that in the name of Jesus. Amen.